going to be reading from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. I'm very excited to dig into this book. One of the more difficult books of the Old Testament, but just filled with gems. Zechariah 4, 6 through 7, hear God's word. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Amen. Father, we thank you for the power of your grace that it goes far as the curse is found. We bless you for this opportunity to dig into this magnificent book of Zechariah, and I pray that you would give me grace to be able to uh, clearly articulate what you have laid upon my heart and for each one of us to uh, rejoice in it with faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Zechariah is the second of the three post-exilic prophets, that means prophets that prophesied after the exile was finished and the Israelites came back into the land. So we've only got one more book before we're done with the Old Testament. And one of the things that I have noticed as I've done a little bit of research is that there are very few people who have preached through the entire book of Zechariah. And I've wondered why to some degree it may be because it is a difficult book. Uh, it's an intimidating book uh, in many ways, and if you view it in a linear fashion, there's a lot of confusing passages because it looks like he's talking about the Maccabees in one section, then about Christ, then about the Maccabees, and why is it jumping back and forth, and it seems like certain passages are out of context. But if you understand the Hebrew structure, and on the back of your outlines, I've given an extensive structure of the entire book then everything falls into place. And so hopefully that can be like a, a road map for you. Now admittedly on any reading that you take, there are some magnificent, beautiful prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book, but there are also prophecies that have puzzled the greatest minds uh, out there. <clears throat> for example, who are the three shepherds that were dismissed in one month in Zechariah 11 verse eight? Uh, David, Nora, and I, when we were doing research on this, we found over 40 interpretations of who those three shepherds were. And there are some other very vexing uh, passages in there as well. So, um, you know, it's um, one of those things that I'm not going to settle every debate on the book of Zechariah. I feel I know every passage in here and that I've got the right answer, but I do want to approach this humbly because there's a lot of diverse opinions out there. Now, the first thing I like to do when I'm studying, especially a difficult book, but any book, is to get a little bit of the background, the dates, uh, what's going on uh, behind the scenes. And I'm just going to read you two verses from Ezra chapter 5 that give us some very helpful background to this book. Ezra 5, 1 through 2. <clears throat> then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Ido, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. 
Now, when you compare those two verses with the first verse of Zechariah, there are five things that you can absolutely know with certainty. And these help you to interpret uh, the Bible. First of all, you know that this prophecy must have something to do with encouraging the returnees to build the temple of Jerusalem. Ezra said so. And there are people who deny that, but Ezra said there's a physical temple that's involved here. It's a huge clue to interpreting the first half of the book. Second, we know that he was a contemporary of Haggai, and he tag-teamed with that prophet. Third, based upon the dates in Zechariah, we know exactly how his ministry integrates with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, the second half of Zechariah is later, during the ministry of uh, Nehemiah. It starts about 18 years later. But this first prophecy in chapter 1 begins in 520 B.C. Fourth, because of that fact... We know that at least in the first half of the book, the temple had not yet been built. And uh, like Haggai, Zechariah is interested in getting the people to do so. It'll be another four years before the temple uh, is built. Now, by the second half of the book, it's already built, okay? Fifth, we know that his prophecies began two months after Haggai's began. So there is not a lot of confusion about the background, and that means I can dive straight into the meat of the, the text. Now, in the broadest brush strokes, every major section of this book describes the need for the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom. It anticipates the coming of the kingdom in some way. But it also helped the Jews who had returned from Babylon to not be so mystified as to why everybody's opposing their work. It's not just a political thing. He's going to be showing them that there are principalities, there are demonic powers behind those nations that are moving those nations to oppose them. They've got to contend with those principalities and powers. And this book has some marvelous instruction on spiritual warfare. Now, if you were to divide the book up into two parts, which the very, very right hand of your chart does, then you'll see that the first half of the book deals with the present day situation in Zechariah's day. And the second half of the book, uh, chapters 9 through 14, deal primarily with the future. If you were to divide the book up in terms of the nations or the empires that Satan manipulated to oppose his kingdom, then it really neatly divides up into four major parts. And I think it's a helpful way of looking at the book. Now, you'll see the four parts, I'm just going to go through real quickly, in the red letter titles on that chart, just so that you're following along. Chapters 1 through 8 demonstrate quite well that the power and might of Persia cannot stop God's plans for the Messiah. Cannot stop it. Those eight chapters would have been a tremendous encouragement for the uh, remnant in Israel during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, who often faced enormous opposition from uh, not just the Persian emperors, but man, the local uh, Persian officials as well were horrible to them. So Zechariah, what he's doing is he's giving them a behind-the-scenes look at what is happening, where the historical books see physical and politics and things like that. This is saying that the invisible battles are the ones that determine the visible ones. Then chapters 9 through 10 show that the next empire, that's the Greek empire, <clears throat> will not be able to stop the plans for the Messiah. So you're going to see through each of these major sections a, a progression forward historically. 
uh, moving from the battles of Persia to the battles of Greece. And that section actually does just poke into the time of, uh, of Rome because it's anticipating the coming of Messiah. But the bulk of that section is dealing with how God helped the Maccabees uh, successfully stand for liberty and justice against the demonic persecutions of the Greek states, especially Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, God would use that wretched man's persecutions to actually purify the church and make it stronger. So far from opposing, or well, he was opposing, but far from stopping God's plans, God was using that as a part of his plans to advance his kingdom. The third section, chapter 11, comes historically after the second, and it shows that even apostate Israel could not stop God's plans for the Messiah. And Israel would become so apostate that they would reject their Messiah, and Messiah would reject Israel. And God explains why all that's happening. That's in chapter 11. Then the last section, chapters 12 through 14, shows how even the Roman Empire, during the same period as chapter 11, cannot stop God's plans for the Messiah. And all the way through that section, you've got repeated use of Jehovah of hosts, uh, literally Jehovah of armies, in opposition to the human armies uh, of man. And you see just marvelous, uh, amazing discussions of the greatest tribulation that the church has ever seen or ever will see. It was the tribulation under Nero. And it will also discuss the war against Jerusalem and God's judgments of the nations after that. Okay? Now, what is the upshot and the conclusion to the whole book? Well, the last paragraph, that's chapter 14, 16 through 21, shows that the Messiah will gradually build his kingdom so successfully it will take over the world and it will bring everything defiled into this world into a state of holiness. It's an incredibly encouraging book. So that's the overarching look at the book. It kind of is helpful to fly over the forest before you dig down into the details of that forest, and that's what we're going to do now. Let's go back to the first section and try to get a handle on what is happening there. And again, hopefully that outline can, can help you because when you're dealing with chiasms, we're not used to thinking in terms of those. It's sometimes helpful to have a visual before you. So you can see this is a chiasm, and I've actually been very, very surprised at the number of books in the Old Testament that used chiasms to structure the material. I tended to be very skeptical of that, but they're just so clearly there. And uh, when you look at the center of that chiasm, you can see that it symbolically, even though the events occurred in Zechariah's day, it symbolically pointed to Christ and his kingdom. That whole section, though, was designed to encourage the Israel of Ezra chapter 5 to get back to the work of building the temple. Now, if you look at the red letters on the right-hand side of that chart, you will see that even geographically there's a structuring that's going on. The outside parts of the chiasm are universal all over the globe, and then it goes down to Persia, and then it goes down to Judah, and then it goes down to the temple, and then it goes to the heart of the book, which is Jesus Christ himself. So it really is beautifully structured. <clears throat> um, there's nothing in here about rebuilding a temple in the future. Uh, we're going to uh, show you that that was simply a symbol of Christ's kingdom. Now let me walk you through the parts of that first major chiasm. The A sections are simply the introduction and the conclusion of that section. 
And both of them are calling the people to remember his covenant. It was a violation of the covenant that led to their exile in the first place. And in the first day, the people say, yeah, we acknowledge that. That's why we were cast into exile. We want better for ourselves, is basically what they're saying. And the themes that are introduced in the first day are remembering, covenant, law, that God is the God of armies, and the spiritual warfare that's going to be a big part of this book. In fact, um, the name for God, Jehovah of armies, occurs 53 times in this book. I mean, it is a major, major theme. In the second A, God repeats some of those themes and makes sure that they will remember the covenant by making a beautiful memorial out of gold for them. It's a crown that he puts on Joshua's head. He becomes a type of Christ. I won't get into that. The B sections describe spiritual warfare that goes on throughout the earth. Very vivid pictures. You know, he paints in your mind of these four horses, four, four different colored horses, and four riders and four spirits and spiritual warfare that these strange angelic beings must engage in. It's a result of their vigilance that they can report in chapter 1 verse 11, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold all the earth is resting quietly. What a cool report. Now almost identical language is used in the second B section, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I don't have time to get into the details of why that would be so encouraging to the people of that time. The C sections both promise to cast out occult powers, cast them out of Israel. And I love these sections. It is possible, even in the Old Covenant, it is possible to cast the occult out of a nation if the leaders of that nation... Uh, are, are willing to be involved in that. Now, you might question, why on earth would the occult be in Israel anyway? Weren't these all believers who came out of Babylon? And the answer is really no. Anytime God sends his people somewhere, Satan sends his people right along with them. That happened in early America. You had the Puritans and the pilgrims who came to America. Within 50 years, you had these occult people sending their, uh, their little plantations to try to influence the new world. So Satan's always doing that. And you don't have to read very far through Ezra and Nehemiah to realize that the occult had infiltrated through intermarriages and alliances with Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. In fact, this is really weird, but just a few years after this chapter is written, uh, Eliashib, the next high priest after Joshua dies, had invited Tobiah to live in the temple. He made a guest suite for him. Here is the Antichrist living right in the temple, and Nehemiah is furious over this, and this book indicates that God was infuriated as well. And so the first C section has the horns or the rulers that have been troubling Israel being scattered by four prophetic or symbolic uh, carpenters. Some people say tradesmen, but carpenters. Uh, we like carpenters. They chase away all the bad things, right? So four carpenters, those are the prophets, chasing away out of Israel these four horns. And these horns are not only the powers of the nations, but the occult that stood behind those powers. Now let's go ahead and look at the second C section. That's chapter 5, verses um, 5 through 11. And this also deals with the occult being cast out of Israel. It's a very gut-churning image. 
uh, beginning to read at verse 5 of chapter 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. So we've got a good angel who is restraining this demon woman inside this basket. Now she's still alive. She is ready to pounce out at any time that she can, but there is some restraint that is put upon her. Verse 9, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Now the two women... Uh, with stork wings are unclean spirits, the stork being an unclean bird, who are helping this woman, and they fly away, fly her away to build her a house, which is a synonym word for temple, which will be in opposition to God's house or temple. Uh, Genesis 10, verse 10 is the first reference to the land of Shinar that you have in the the Bible, and it, it relates it to Babel. And the next chapter, Genesis 11, relates it to the Tower of Babel. Now, when he was giving this vision, he could have just said, hey, he's taking him off to Persia, or he's taking him off to Babylon. It would have said exactly the same thing, but he uses this language from Genesis to make it crystal clear. He's talking about the occult. He's talking about something that is in opposition to God. So here is a demonic presence being cast out of Israel just as the four horns are cast out. And here's another little interesting tidbit in verse 6. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Now literally, that last clause can be translated, this is their eye throughout the earth. Uh, The eye was considered precious. So earlier in the book, God said that the remnant was the apple of his eye. That's how much he would protect and cherish and uh, care for his, uh, his uh, remnant. He considered them very precious. And what God is saying here is that the entire earth considers this demonic woman as precious, as their eye, as the ring of Mordor, so to speak. The whole earth cherishes and clings and protects the occult with their disobedient dealings. Now, they might not realize that this is what they're doing. In fact, some of these Israelites might have been horrified to realize that their disobedience to God's law was, in fact, the embrace of this woman. But that's exactly what goes on. Anytime that we sin deliberately against God's law, we are giving legal ground to the demonic to be influencing in our lives. And uh, so these two C-sections are God's call and authorization to purge Israel of the occult, a command that Ezra and Nehemiah took to heart. Now, when you read the last chapters of Nehemiah, you realize Nehemiah is exhausted. He is so tired, but he, he reports that he has accomplished this task of purging Israel of this wickedness. 
Now the D sections are similar. They use two different symbols of evaluating Judah according to the law of God and bringing reformation. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, it uses the familiar image of a measuring line. One of the pictures I've got there has kind of a, of a what's it called? Uh, yeah, plumb line. That's not what this is. This is a measuring line that they, they take to measure a city and measure other things. So it's a symbol of them being measured according to the Word of God. Chapter, uh, when that D section, really, that first D section is interpreted in light of the book of Esther, oh wow, the whole thing absolutely comes to life. Let me, let me just give you some hints here. The nations were intent on plundering the Jews under wicked Haman. Zechariah 2 verse 8. And before that, they're, they're backslidden. They're backslidden in here, they're backslidden in the book of Esther. Then in verse 9 here, it promises that he's going to turn around their plundering, and the Jews are going to plunder the very ones that had intended to plunder them. They're going to plunder uh, Haman and uh, their crowds. Verse 11 as a result of this tumultuous time says, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in their midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This was exactly fulfilled in the book of Esther. Esther 8.17 says, then many of the people of the land became Jews. They converted. And as a result of that massive conversion, Zechariah became esteemed in the eyes of the people. There's lots of these integrating uh, knitting together of the historical books with these, uh, these post-exilic uh, prophets. Now the second D section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, uses the image of a flying scroll, a huge scroll. If you convert that into modern measurements, it would be a scroll of about 10 yards by 5 yards. That's a pretty big scroll. I mean, if you saw a Bible that was 10 yards by 5 yards flying around through the air, it would get your attention, wouldn't it? Well, he's saying that this is the law of God measuring the behavior of these Jews in Israel. And as a result of that, any Jews that were in rebellion against him, he was putting a curse upon them from what? The Bible. Deuteronomy puts curses and blessings upon those depending on their relationship to the law. So don't knock the idea of blessings and cursings as being an antiquated uh, idea. Angels and demons back up the blessings and the cursings unless those cursings are covered in the blood of Christ. Uh, both of those sections say a lot about cursings. It's a, it really is a big subject that needs to be studied more, I think, in the Christian church. Now that brings us to the heart of the chiasm, chapters 3 and 4. These two symbols of Jesus and his atonement show the spiritual power of God himself overcoming the curses of Satan and bringing blessings through the Holy Spirit. Now this event took place during the uh, times of Ezra and Nehemiah. Satan was attacking them from every angle that he could. He brought greed and division and immorality and all kinds of things to weaken them and make them ineffective. So what's going on is the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are giving us the visible background and Zechariah is coming behind the scenes and he's saying, okay, this is what's going on in the realm of angels and demons. Zechariah 3, beginning at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So he is resisting the ministry of this high priest. 
He's not a type of Christ yet. He will be in, in just a little bit, and, but in this paragraph, he's covered with filthy garments, and he's utterly unable to oppose Satan. And um, it's uh, really the clean garments that are put on him that at this point are the type of Christ, but he starts off just being Joshua. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So notice that uh, he's not the Messiah. Joshua's not the Messiah here. He had to be saved from the fires of hell just like you and I do. He needs the Messiah. And God had already rescued him from hell, but he still has sin in his life. And what does that sin do? It gives opportunity for Satan to accuse him, to come against him. Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Once Joshua was cleansed, and all of the moral ground uh, that Satan had claimed in his life was removed. And once he was clothed from head to toe in the provisions of Christ, God stood by to hear his prayers. Nothing could hinder his prayers. He had power in his prayers. The Lord heard his intercessions just like he always hears the intercessions of Christ. Why? Because he's clothed in Christ, right? That's the clothing. And this is what I mean when we must be clothed with the provision of the Lord. Daily, we need to confess our sins, take them so there's no advantage that demons can take of us, confess our sins, put on the righteous robes of Christ, and then we can daily engage the enemy in intercessory prayer. And if you don't know how to do that, I've got a prayer book that shows you prayers that you can pray to do exactly that. But the clothed Joshua now transitions into being a type of Christ in verses 6 through 10, and he will carry that typology all the way into chapter 4. But there is a curious stone that stands as a type of Christ as well. Now look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Oh yeah, there is more than the stone. There's other people who are a sign as well. A wondrous sign is like a prophetic sign, where the branch of the next phrase makes Joshua a type of Christ, and it does so by quoting Isaiah, the branch language, which is clearly messianic. These companions of Joshua are types of believers who will work with Christ as a, as a universal priesthood of believers. So they typify us. He goes on, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. So he's play acting. You're going to be the branch representing Christ. For I'm behold, I'm bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. Now, let me just stop there. This stone is also a type of Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone of the temple, just like this stone is going to be the chief cornerstone of the physical temple. But this symbolic cornerstone is a very unusual one. It says it has seven eyes on it. Now, some translations translate it as seven facets. Instead of having four, it's got seven facets on it. 
And others say, no, it's got to be literal eyes that are on it. Either way you take it, Revelation picks up this imagery of seven eyes and says it represents the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So we've got a stone representing Christ in all, filled with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and God inscribes his, his writing on this. He's commissioned. So it, it symbolizes Jesus, filled with the Spirit, commissioned by the Father. So no wonder the last clause of verse 9 says, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. It's a prophecy about Jesus. On Nisan 14, AD 30, Jesus in one day removed all of the sin of the land and of his people, and uh, it was forever. Verse 10 then speaks of the millennial promise of shalom as flowing from the cross. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, Everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Those are standard imager, image, images of millennial shalom. Now, I'm not going to go in depth into the prophecy of the lampstand and his two olive trees because I dealt with that pretty extensively in my Revelation series, but it has absolutely fantastic imagery. So the, the lampstand represents the church of the new covenant, the oil in the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit's empowering provision, enabling us to shine forth the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel represent the two sides of Christ in his priestly work and in his kingly work. Now, Zerubbabel was a ruler. He wasn't a king. But still, it's, it's pointing to Christ as a priest king. And then it mentions a capstone that will finish off this is symbolic as well that the, all of the prophecies concerning Christ's kingdom will be fulfilled. We are a temple. Remember we saw last week, we are a temple being built up of living stones. When the last elect person, the last stone is put into the temple, it's like a capstone. That's the end of history. Okay, so that's kind of what's behind that. Now, I do want to read the words of encouragement that Zechariah gave to his contemporaries who were so, so discouraged. This is chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, what I read earlier. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. God's spirit and his grace can level mountains and enable the absolutely impossible to happen. Okay? The encouragement that they needed to persevere in God's grace is an encouragement we need in every age. Now, I'm not going to say a great deal about chapters 7 through 8, other than it answered questions about uh, whether they could quit fasting as they had been doing for 70 years. There was a good reason for them fasting in exile. Now, though they're back in the land, they're still receiving all kinds of opposition, so they're mystified. Do we fast or do we feast? And um, Zechariah basically doesn't want them to ritualize the fasting. He calls them to feast in faith that God will fulfill his promises. No need for fasting, at least not on those monthly fasts for the whole nation. Now, if you study those two chapters on your own, I'll just give you a very, very summary uh, 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 intro to it. You'll see that it teaches us a lot about good and bad fasting. It's clear from those two chapters that fasting is meaningless unless it is done unto the Lord in the power of the Spirit and accompanied with prayer. 
Uh, it is clear that God is not endorsing an ascetic approach to life that feels guilty over eating food over at the tables over here or having fun, you know, with each other. No, he says, we can have that. It's clear in this section that fasting should always be for a specific purpose of humbling ourselves. Otherwise, if there's no reason to humble ourselves, God says he loves to delight us in feasting. In fact, in this section, feasting is a sign of faith. It can be a sign of faith. I remember one time Kathy and I were uh, fasting for a prolonged period of time for a very, very difficult situation that I won't get into. It doesn't involve the church here. It was elsewhere. And without hearing any report from that, uh, that sector, we suddenly had the sense that our prayer was answered. We could stop fasting and start feasting, and we did. And sure enough, down the road, the Lord showed the answer that had come. But I think that's what's going on here. He's saying, even though you can't see it with your physical eyes, I've given you promises that you can now feast as a sign of your faith. It's just a beautiful two chapters. Okay, I do want to get, though, into the difficult and controversial sections of this book because I think they, too, are very practical and helpful. Chapters 9 through 10 focus on the opposition to God's kingdom from the Greek Empire and to some degree from the Roman Empire that would come after it. Why these warnings about empires opposing the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom? Well, in the introduction, he's already given us the simple answer, is that Satan will use every tool he can, including empires, to kill Israel off, to stop the Messiah from coming, and if he can't accomplish that, he will still do everything in his power to oppose God's people. And so these encouraging sections tell us that empires are no match for God and should not be feared by any of his people. Okay, we can say the same thing about any empires today. Now you'll notice that chapters 9 through 10 are not in the form of a chiasm. Zechariah uses a different Hebrew structural technique called a mid-scale parallelism, or sometimes called mid-scale parallel symmetry. Now sometimes those repetitions in the Hebrew can go on for a long time before being resolved. It could be uh, ABC, ABC, ABCDA. In this case, it's a very simple one. It's ABC, ABCDA. And though it touches on the Roman Empire, when dealing with the Messiah, the bulk of these two chapters focus on the horrible Greek empire that got divided into two parts. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, describes some of the turmoil that happened after the Persian Empire was conquered by Alexander the Great and then moving forward. Even though some of these kings, uh, that uh, Greek kings following Alexander were rather horrific, uh, and though Satan used them to try to exterminate Israel and keep the Messiah from coming into the world, Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the worst, Satan was unsuccessful. And so the first B section, verse 9, is a well-known prophecy of Jesus. He's at the heart of what Satan had been previously opposing. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Though Christ came in peace, the very next verse shows he's quite capable of war. And so the C section takes us all the way up to 8070, Christ's war against Israel. That's verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim 
and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle blow bow shall be cut off. And consistent with other Old Testament references to the battle in AD 70, the second half of verse 10 shows that the kingdom glories would come afterwards. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And this is actually another quotation from Isaiah, actually I should say it from two prophets, Isaiah 2 and Micah 4. So when he quotes this little section, he's saying, look, this is a shorthand way of saying, you've got to believe all of the promises that Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 are talking about. They say this will be the end result of the kingdom, but it starts slowly, it grows gradually. And then he talks about, uh, well, he mentions it in connection with AD 70 because that's when the progress starts. That's when he starts speaking peace to the nations. And then he talks about emptying out Sheol and what Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of the co your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The waterless pit is Sheol. And since believers are no longer in Sheol but are in heaven, this had to have occurred uh, in AD 70 or earlier, when all of the believers were still in Sheol. And having been brought up from Sheol, God promises a double reward in verse 12. And so the first half of this mid-scale parallelism takes us from the Greek Empire all the way up to the Kingdom of Christ. Second half of the mid-scale parallelism does exactly the same thing again. It starts with a later stage of the Empire of Greece. So the next day, that's chapter 9, verses 13 to 17, it's just a classic description of the Maccabean fight for liberty against Antiochus Epiphanes. I sure wish they would do an, a good movie on the Maccabees. It's just some awesome, amazing history. I've never seen a good movie on it. But anyway, this Antiochus Epiphanes pretended to be God incarnate, Zeus incarnate, the lightning god incarnate. And what God is saying, nah, you're puny. There, you are no challenge for me. I am in control of lightning. So verse 14, then the Lord will be seen over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. Now, is there any historical reference to God being seen over them during that time and in this fashion? And actually there is. Maccabees, 2 Maccabees 5 says that for 40 days, Everyone in Israel could see God's armies battling from the sky with chariots and spears and arrows and flashes of light. It was a miraculous opening of the eyes of God's people to encourage them that these battles with Antiochus Epiphanes against huge overwhelming odds are not really overwhelming odds when God is with you, okay? And, and uh, I'll put the quotes up on the, uh, up on the web. Anyway, the whole a section shows the remarkable successes God gave to the Maccabees. However, the B section encourages them not to think that what the Maccabees are supplying is the best. It was cool, but it's not the best that God has to offer. There's far better things promised once the Messiah comes. They're encouraged in chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, to pray for the latter reigns of the new covenant, probably a reference to the pouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, and the millennial reigns to follow. Then the C section moves us from Pentecost up to AD 70 again, just like the first half did, where God would battle against the evil shepherds. And then the D section, less people think that 70 AD is the 
total end of apostate Israel, God assures them in verses 6 through 12 that Israel's rejection will not be total. In other words, there will always be a remnant of Jews scattered around the empire that are going to, in every age, be coming to Christ. And then he goes on to say that their rejection will not be final since eventually Israel as a nation will be saved. He will whistle for them from every place that they have been scattered to, and he will save them. It's a fantastic background passage to interpreting Romans 11. I know some of you don't buy my interpretation of Romans 11, but read some of these background passages. When you read them in light of passages like this, the whole of Romans 11 opens up. And if I ever preach through Zechariah verse by verse, uh, which I've come to love this book, Uh, I hope to do justice to that, because it really is a key uh, section for eschatology. But then in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we're back to the problems that will come against Israel. People are confused. Why does it keep going back here? Uh, And I believe there's a, a very deliberate reason for this. I believe the structure itself is teaching us something. Since they were in the Old Covenant, it seems that the good, the little bit of good is always bracketed by evil, by the A sections, okay? And it's not going to be till the new covenant that this begins to be reversed and completely overturned. So even the structure here lends itself to the flow, the thematic flow of the book. And that brings us to the rest of chapter 11, a chapter that has generated countless contradictory interpretations. Now, I've examined a ton of alternatives, uh, explanations, and the one that makes the most sense to me is that this describes the reasons and the results of the war against Jerusalem. Uh, Take a look at the center of the chiasm, which is verses 11 through 13. Anytime there's controversy, I try to see, do, do other prophets quote it? Does the New Testament quote it? And in this case, Matthew quotes these verses along with Jeremiah and says by inspiration that these exact words... Forget about the controversy of whether it's Jeremiah, Zechariah. These exact words were fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this gives an inspired anchor point. Let me read verses 11 through 13. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now this symbolic action was a prophetic type of the 30 pieces of silver that Judas would betray Jesus for. The price that the law sets for a dead slave, a slave gored by an ox. Not very much. And so the the phrase, that princely price, is sarcasm. Almost all commentators see it as sarcasm, though it was the price paid for the Prince of Peace to be betrayed, right? So it, 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 it is there a literal as well. And God guaranteed by this prophecy that Judas would have remorse, would cast those silver coins into the temple, that it would be given to the potter in order to buy the potter's field. These verses are a sad prophecy that Israel would betray and reject their future Messiah. Now, why would they reject their future Messiah? That's where we get the answer in the rest of this chiasm. Take a look at the A sections. The A sections document that the religious leaders of the first century were worthless shepherds. 
Caiaphas and his family were murderous thieves who gathered a fortune at the expense of God's people. They served themselves, not the sheep. The B sections both deal with the equipment of the uh, shepherds, with the first B section being the equipment of the good shepherd, and the second B section being the equipment of the worthless shepherd. You know, even worthless shepherds hold up the Bible, you know, as their sign of authority, and then they twist and abuse it and fail to feed the flock with that sign, and they misuse all of the other implements, all of the other equipment that God has given to them, such as church discipline. And so that's the kind of contrast that he is giving there. And here is the question that comes up. Will worthless shepherds last forever? And the answer is no, praise God, they will not last forever. The C-sections point to Christ, the good shepherd. He knows how to take care of worthless shepherds. Look at how he does it. This is really remarkable. In the first C-section, he breaks the staff called grace as a symbol that there will be no more grace for Israel as a nation after AD 70. He was done with them. They were a rejected nation, at least in the first century. In the second C-section, he breaks the staff called union to guarantee that Israel would be a house divided against itself. And indeed, the three Jewish factions fought each other, killed more of each other than the Romans killed of the Jews. The point is that Israel became a graceless house divided against itself. Now I'll try to comment on the most controversial verse in chapter 11, verse 8. Verse 8 is part of Zechariah play-acting as yet another type of Christ. You, you will see, this book is just plumb full of typology. Now in the midst of this play-acting, he says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also loathed me. Who on earth are these shepherds? As I mentioned earlier, uh, David Knorr and I ran across evidence of over 40 interpretations on their identities, so I'm not going to be totally dogmatic, just a little dogmatic, <laughs> on who these are. Let me at least put forward some ideas that you can run with, and maybe one of you can get the Nobel Peace Prize for coming up with the answer, or maybe not, knowing what they give prizes for. But I see this as a typological foreshadowing of Christ, and therefore, in my books, there must be two sets of three that we look for. Three who acted as the type in Zechariah's day, and three who are the anti-type in Christ's day. That's the way types work. All types work that way. You've got to look for the historical event back then. You've got to look at what it's pointing to in the future. Now, most commentators believe that this chapter was written a long time after the first eight chapters, um, at least 18 years later, though I think it was actually after Nehemiah's second visit. Since Nehemiah is the background, here are some possibilities. Nehemiah 6, 10 through 14, describes a false prophet by the name of Shemaiah who tried to convince Nehemiah that God wanted him to flee into the temple for safety, and he did that to try to discredit Nehemiah in the eyes of the other people. What a cowardly leader, you know? Nehemiah exposed him as a false prophet who had actually been hired by Sanballat and Tobiah. Here is the Antichrist types who are hiring and dealing with shepherds. They're kind of controlling these shepherds of Israel. The same passage also mentions other prophets that have been hired by them, but Shemaiah seems to be the head prophet and certainly fits the bill of one kind of shepherd, a prophet. 
Second, Eliashib was the high priest in the days of Nehemiah, 18 years later. Joshua had died, and Eliashib was a worthless priest, high priest, who had replaced him. He actually made a room in the temple for Tobiah to stay in. He let the Antichrist live in the temple. Nehemiah threw Tobias's household goods out of the temple, cleansed it. Eliashib is definitely a worthless priestly shepherd. So it's a second kind of a shepherd that needed to be dismissed by God's authority. Now, if you read Malachi, you will see that there were a lot of other priests that Eliashib had convinced to be with him, or at least had surrounded himself with other worthless priests. Um, anyway, the third possibility from Nehemiah was Joiada, the son of the high priest who had married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. Now, can I prove that those three are in the background? I cannot. But I find it significant that when you look at Nehemiah, there are three and only three people, shepherds, that were used by Satan to undermine God's purpose in the days of Zechariah. Now, we aren't even told that Zechariah dismissed them. But to me, it makes sense that these are three men who considered themselves to be shepherds of Israel and who needed to be dismissed. Okay? So that's my view in, uh, of the type. If those are the types, who are the anti-types? Well, if the structure of the passage is correct, then they have to be three individuals in the first century A.D., and they probably have to be three individuals who are leaders over three groups, just like the types were, okay? And um, let me give you the three most likely candidates out of the 40, and the first one is my view. First, perhaps most likely, would be the three leaders of the religious groups known as the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Christ consigned all three to destruction in Matthew chapter 23. Now, if those three groups are consigned to destruction, that would involve their leaders as well, with Caiaphas, the high priest, being one of the most notorious. And I tentatively hold to this interpretation because it most closely matches the three figures that stood as a type in Zechariah's day. Now, if this is true, then you would probably have to translate it the way the New King James does and say that they're dismissed rather than being destroyed. And the Hebrew can be translated either way. Others think that it was the three political leaders of Israel at that time who lost their control over Israel in one month when the zealots took over Jerusalem. That's definitely a possibility because rulers are sometimes called shepherds, and it does appear they lost control in one month. Others think it was the three revolutionary leaders of the three factions who fought each other during the war. This was my default position before, but as I've studied this, I'm thinking, I don't see how you can have them dismissed in one month, destroyed in one month, vanished in, however you interpret that word, the one month was my hang-up. So I really default to the first one, where, or, or, or the second interpretation uh, could be there. Now, if you want to dig into it more, there's a ton of other explanations out there, some of which are unbelievably bogus. Anyway, that brings us to the last section of the book, chapters 12 through 14. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, is another description of the pre-first century nations that would come against Israel in warfare. And that A section parallels chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, that's the second A section, that describes the first century gathering of the nations against Israel in warfare. 
Now, in both of those cases, here are pagan Gentile nations that God is judging by his law. You have been seeing through these Old Testament books, God holds not just Israel accountable to his law, he holds all nations accountable to his law. And so those people nowadays, those Christians who say that our government is exempt from God's law, have no leg to stand on. God holds all nations accountable to his law. But I do want to quickly take you through the second A. We'll skip the first one so that you can see that it really is a first century judgment on Israel and the nations. Reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And in the Revelation series, I documented that all nations of the Roman Empire did indeed gather against Jerusalem. You look at the different legions and all of the different places that they had conscript soldiers for. They did. And the result is given in the next verses, starting to read in the second line of verse 2, the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. (laughs) A lot of people just focus on the judgment against Israel. But God was just as angry with the Gentile nations of the Roman Empire, and he brought enormous judgments against them. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now in a couple of verses, he will prophesy some more about fighting against those nations. But in verse 4, he returns to discussing the war from Israel's perspective. And he tells of a remarkable event that will happen. And in that day, his feet will stand, this is God's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, even the anti-Christian Jewish Talmud acknowledges that the glory cloud left the temple and stood on the Mount of Olives, Talmud says, for the entire three years of the war. Stood there. Anyway, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now, there are disagreements on how you should translate this. I'm not going to get into into the details of that uh, or give a definitive interpretation. Some see this as a double landslide, such as Josephus said did happen at the time of Isaiah because he's comparing it to Isaiah, right? So the landslide on the Mount of Olives filled two valleys rather than creating two valleys. So that's one interpretation. And indeed, when you look at archaeology, you do find that there was a first century landslide on both sides of the Mount of Olives. That's one interpretation. But even if you take the way the New King James translates it, there is evidence that the split we see today at the Mount of Olives may indeed have happened at that first century earthquake that occurred on Pentecost of AD 66. If you want a ton more details on these verses, you can look up my sermon on Revelation 12, uh, 13 through 14. Verse 5 says, Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. According to Martin, Azal is on the other end of the dip into the wilderness. I've not been able to verify that, but this is the most logical route for the Christians to flee on the way to Pella. It goes on, yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. I want you to notice this is not an end of history kind of a, of a, um, uh, 
uh, of a flight, but they were to flee just like they fled in the days of King Isaiah. So this is much less cataclysmic than pre-mills want to make this. And as a side note, if they had not obeyed God's command, they would have been killed by the zealots in Jerusalem that were left behind. But the zealots were likely to avoid a brand new rift made by an earthquake, especially after a landslide, and especially if the glory cloud's on top of that mountain. They, they would have been, that would have unnerved them totally. And the fact that they were unnerved could be seen by the fact that to this day, it is recorded in the Talmud that God forsook uh, Jerusalem and his glory cloud was on the Mount of Olives. Anyway, this valley was the one place that these Christians could run without being molested. Verses 6 through 7 shows two more things that happened during that war. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Now the first sign was recorded by Tacitus as the sun darkening during the day and a bright light shining during the night. Now we looked at all of those signs when I preached on Revelation 6, 12 through 17. Those Roman soldiers, they were absolutely freaked out when the darkness came because they knew it was not a solar eclipse. They knew it was something supernatural. And the general, he just tried to calm them. And he said, yeah, God's on our side. Yeah, this is a supernatural darkness. But he used it to his own advantage. And both the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus record that a miraculous light lit up the whole city of Jerusalem so brightly that, quote, that it appeared to be bright daytime, unquote. So this miracle literally fulfills verse 7, which says, when evening comes, there will be light. And I think it's just such a beautiful, beautiful symbol of the end of the old covenant, darkening of the sun, and the beginning of the new covenant, supernatural light from heaven, from God himself. Verse 8 gives the other sign. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. In my Revelation series I commented on both the literal and the symbolic significance and fulfillment of that. Verse 9 then goes on to say that Christ's kingdom would expand over all the world after that war. I do want to just briefly comment on the most controversial portion of this chapter, and that's verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Who fought against Jerusalem? The Roman Empire fought against Jerusalem and the various nations composing that empire. Verse 12, their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. When you read the historical accounts of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, this is a perfect description of what happened to the legion armies that were vacationing there at that time. This was a great vacation resort spot. Mount Vesuvius exploded and released a massive pyroclastic surge that covered several Roman cities, and the surge was so hot, um, many volcanists say that it should be, if it was uh, pyroclastic about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, that it would have consumed the soft tissues of anyone found within a certain radius before their bodies even hit the ground. This is a literal fulfillment. Then verse 15 goes on to describe plagues subsequently hitting Roman citizens and animals. And Roman historians say that immediately after Mount Vesuvius erupted, there were plagues all over the empires. Now, they blamed it on the ash. 
Who knows how it all came, but it is indisputable that these plagues hit the Roman Empire. And then verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who was left of all of the nations which came against Jerusalem, that implies that there was a decimation of those armies. How were they decimated? Well, they were decimated in the first war, then they were decimated through civil war throughout the empire, killing millions, and then through plagues that decimated them, and then they had lost so many soldiers, they had to conscript boys to man the armies against Israel in AD 135. So God did indeed humble the nations. Both Israel and nations were judged. But here's the thing. These were redemptive judgments that led to a massive growth of the church. Already by the time of Tertullian, he claims Christianity was taking over the empire. That's within a remarkably short period of time. And though Jews were not allowed to enter the city of Jerusalem for centuries, a Christian church was established there. And for many centuries to come, Christians made pilgrimage to that. It's just historically documented uh, stuff. So that's what the next verses are about. Now, enough on that section. I want to move on to the B sections of the chiasm, and we're going to end this very, very quickly. Chapter 12 Verses 10 through 14 gives the first B, which shows God's salvation and preservation of the remnant during the Great Tribulation. This is parallel on the chiasm with the purifying and preservation of the remnant in the same tribulation, chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Let's take a look at each one. First, Zechariah 12, beginning to read at verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. There's a lot of controversy on this, but uh, there are, I want you to notice three things in terms of identifying who these people were and when this event would take place. First, the very ones who pierced Jesus are the ones who will mourn. This has nothing to do with thousands of years later. It's the very people who pierced him. Second, verses 12 through 14 also nail this down to the time before AD 70, since all tribal distinctions among the Jews was completely lost after AD 70, for sure after the Bar Kokhba rebellion. You talk to any rabbi today and they will say, Nobody knows which tribes they come from, with the possible exception, some people say, based on name of the tribe of Levi, but they don't even know that. And so, for sure, you don't know which is the, the family of David, the family of Nathan, family of Shimei, and this passage absolutely mandates that at the time of the fulfillment, all of those families are going to be separate. They will know each other. Third, did people see Jesus in the time leading up to AD 70? And I say yes. In our Revelation series, I gave quotes documenting that. There was this figure of a beautiful man in the sky, awe-inspiring, leading the armies of heaven. Now, the other thing that needs to be settled is whether uh, their mourning was a mourning for judgment or a mourning of repentance unto salvation. And this, too, is a huge debate, even among partial preterists. I'm, I'm surprised how many people don't see this as salvation. 
And I'm not going to repeat a lot of what I've said in my Revelation series, but let me just give you two proofs that it was salvation. First, verse 10 says that a spirit of grace and supplication is poured out on these people. That is positive. That's not judgment. This is salvation. Second, they will mourn for Jesus as if mourning for a firstborn. In other words, they will genuinely love Jesus. But if they are the first century Christians, then it perfectly parallels chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Let me read that. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now this verse is quoted in Matthew 26, 31, as being fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane in A.D. 30, the time when Jesus the shepherd was struck, when the disciples were scattered. And so we have an inspired commentary that anchors this in AD 30. From the death of Christ until the late 60s, there was increasing persecution. But the great tribulation that he's describing in verses 8 through 9 did not start in AD 30. It says, and it shall come to pass. In other words, there's going to be later than AD 30. And I believe that this is referring to the great tribulation that began in AD 62, really heated up in AD 64, and that's where some people actually think it began, because that's when Nero started blaming the Christians for the fires that he set in Rome, and heated up persecution, and then it was cut off in June of AD 68 when Nero died. Now that tribulation was so great it almost wiped out the entire church, and Jesus said, if it had not been cut short, all of the elect would have been killed. But he cut it short. But in Israel, they were far more preserved than elsewhere in the empire, which is another aspect of God's incredible kindness and grace. Let me just read verses 8 through 9. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. These were true believers. This was the remnant that survived. Uh, the tribulation. This is the 144,000 that God protected uh, even during the war. Now, if that was the, the 144,000 survived, well, that means that prior to the war, there were 432,000 Jews who were saved in the land. So it, it's a remnant still, but it's a pretty sizable one. Now, the heart of the chiasm, the C section, deals with the foundations of the new covenant, atonement, and completed. Revelation. No more prophecy to be given. I preached on that uh, during the Revelation series as well. I'm not going to say more today. But even though, let me just end this off this way. Even though the book starts with troubled times, it ends with glorious times. The conclusion of the whole book is that Messiah's kingdom will be successful, will spread over the whole world, and it uses the Feast of Tabernacles as the symbol describing that future age, because that feast is par excellence, the feast describing our era, describing the salvation of the Gentiles. <clears throat> During that feast, just be very brief, they sacrificed 70 bulls over the course of several days, and those 70 bulls were sacrificed for the 70 Gentile nations that would be saved over the course of the New Covenant times. And... It's also the Jews had to live outdoors in booths as a symbol of the fact that they would be rootless and wandering all the way 
up until whatever is prophesied by the last festival, which is Purim, which speaks of the salvation of Israel and even greater blessings to the Gentiles. So again, this ties in with the earlier passage of the salvation of the Jews that we looked at. But what a glorious, glorious picture of our future. How extensive will holiness be in Christ's kingdom? Chapter 14, verses 20 through 21 says, everything will be holy, including amazingly the bells on the horses. Bells on the horses were never holy in the old covenant, never. Defilement always was more dominant than holiness in the Old Covenant. It's just pervasive, you see it. But in the New Covenant, God reverses that and makes the leaven of the kingdom cast out the leaven of sin. There will be no places of unholiness. That's an astounding reversal. But an even more astounding reversal is the very last verse. The last verse implies there's coming a time when there will no longer be any unbelievers on earth. Now, some people have a hard time believing that. But he says... In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Well, Canaanites hadn't existed for a thousand years. What in the world is he talking about? Of course there's no Canaanite. There was no Canaanite in Zechariah's day, if you're talking about literal Canaanites, but he's not. He's using symbology uh, of uh, taking something from the Old Testament. And basically what he is saying is that Joshua's annihilation of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua is symbolic of Christ putting all enemies under his feet. Using the symbolism of Joshua taking that conquest, Jesus, the greater Joshua of Hebrews chapter 4, will be so successful in advancing the Great Commission using the sword of Scripture that no typological Canaanites will remain. Now, translated into literal language, it simply means there will be no more enemies for Christ to deal with. There will be no more believers, unbelievers to be converted. Isn't that what Isaiah prophesied, and Jeremiah prophesied, and so many other prophets prophesied? This is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. He must remain at the right hand of the Father until, what, all enemies are put under his feet. Colossians says it lists principality, power, all these things have to be redeemed. Everything in this world must be redeemed. So I hope you can see that Zechariah is a book designed to encourage our faith. May it do so. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the book of Zechariah. Difficult as it is, there is so much beautiful stuff to mine, and we're grateful for it. Thank you, Father, for your promises concerning the future, and that your purposes are for a good and not for a disaster for the church of Jesus Christ, that eventually Christ will be given all the nations. You have said, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And we pray on behalf of Christ you will give to Christ, our nation, China, Afghanistan, that you would give Egypt, you would give Assyria, you would give all of the nations of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your glory, for the joy of the angels in heaven, and for the honor of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.